And then before you know it, you could see the, the muddy water just coming over the bank, just coming down through our yard, just, just trickling, very small. And the water kept rising and rising and rising and came over the meadow and it kept creeping up higher than it ever had before. And I said, well, yeah, something is going on. Hello and welcome to Vermont Untapped. I'm Mary Wesley. This podcast explores the state through the voices of its own residents. And our next two episodes will feature the voices of Vermonters reflecting on the impact and legacy of Tropical Storm Irene, a way to mark the 10th anniversary of the storm on August 28, 2021. Nine years ago, VFC released Weathering the Storm, an audio documentary created with Vermonters from towns across the state hit hard by Irene. In this special episode of Vermont Untapped, we're re-presenting Weathering the Storm in its entirety. The second episode in this short series, called Menden Remembers, will be released next week. We'll hear from residents of Menden, Vermont, who gathered this summer to share how their perspectives on Irene and its impacts have unfolded over the past 10 years. On August 28, 2011, Tropical Storm Irene devastated many communities across the state, but the damage was not spread equally. What people in Essex and Moncton experienced as heavy wind and rain, residents of towns like Menden, Rochester, Stockbridge, Waterbury, Wilmington, and others saw extreme flooding that washed out roads and bridges, destroyed and damaged homes, and left whole communities cut off completely isolated from the rest of the state. Weathering the Storm emerged from VFC's Irene Storytelling Project, a program that partnered with groups in hard-hit towns to stage and record community gatherings we called Story Circles. Through these structured storytelling events, people embroiled in the experience of storm recovery were able to come together and share their collective experiences. In partnership with Starting Over Strong Vermont, we also worked with residents of Athens, Brattleboro, Ludlow, Plymouth, Waterbury, and Wilmington. Many of the story circles were led by late VFC folklorist Greg Shero and staff member Ailey Baker. Working from the recordings of those circles, Ailey created Weathering the Storm to mark the first anniversary of Irene. Now, on the 10th anniversary, we re-release it here on the Vermont Untapped feed. I invite you to take some time to join the circle and listen to the stories that were shared in the weeks and months following Irene. On August 28, 2011, Tropical Storm Irene struck the state of Vermont. Almost every river and stream in Vermont flooded, resulting in some of the worst devastation seen since the flood of 1927. In the months that followed the storm, the Vermont Folklife Center of Middlebury partnered with organizations and communities around the state to implement the Irene Storytelling Project. Central to the Irene Storytelling Project are community-organized public events that came to be known as Story Circles. A story circle is about shared telling and, just as important, shared listening. Disasters are experienced collectively, only by listening to the constellation of experience, by hearing stories from not one or a few, but many perspectives, does an understanding of the storm and the effects it has had on a community and a region begin to take shape. 
The only requirement of the story circle is that each person takes a seat in the circle. No questions are asked. Rather, each person is invited to talk about whatever feels most relevant to them as the microphone circulates from one person to another. So, who wants to start? You know, it's still really fresh. It just sort of exists in bright fragments, but every individual story became everybody's story. You know, the most tragic incidences to the people with survivor guilt, it was all, it became a narrative. Everybody's story was together. It was all blended. My name is Joe Specht. I'm from Whitingham, Vermont. Good. Pass it around. I'm Martha Slater, and I have lived in the same house on Main Street for 27 years. Okay, I'm Harold Norris. I am the pastor here at Community Christian Church in Athens, Vermont. I'm Ann Coleman. I'm Neil Langer. live in Menden here. Marvin Harvey. I live in North Hollow. I'm a uh, My name is Alyssa Klingensmith. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Scott Bradley. My name is Annie Mackay, and I'm... I'm Bruce Fluell. Todd Keen. Over 250 people participated in story circles hosted by 12 towns in Vermont. What you're about to hear is the story of Tropical Storm Irene as told by a handful of these Vermonters. If ever there was a calm before the storm, it was that day. You could probably lie down on Main Street for 10 or 15 minutes if you wanted and nothing would happen to you because there was no one in town at all. We're very far inland and so I don't think we were taking this as seriously as we might have. So we had planned this, you know, let's enjoy the storm party. I walked down to the town office and stood at the marker for the 1938 flood and then turned and looked down West Main and tried to imagine what it would be like. And, of course, it was unimaginable. I just chose to want to believe that all the other people who were saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to have a little bit of water back in the parking lot were right. They weren't. By the time it was about noon or one, it was really looking like this was really hitting. There wasn't wind. It was surprisingly dead. It was eerie. I was in Burlington, and it was just rain, you know, and people were at the mall and walking around, and it was raining a lot, but it didn't seem like too much. But then later that night, I got an odd call from my mother My brother Greg had managed to get a message to her and said, do not come home. Do not try to drive home. We don't know from one moment to the next. You know, we think we've got it all together, but the good Lord takes over and Mother Nature takes over. And in one swoop, years to build it, moments, one day, and it's all gone. The rain started coming, and I went outside and took a whiff of the air and knew that some of the beaver dams were starting to break, and you could just smell the stench. It smelled like quinine. Like you were out hunting, and you stuck your foot into the swamp, and you pulled it out, and all you did is smell dirt. And then before you know it, you could see the the muddy water just coming over the bank, just coming down through our yard, just, just trickling, very small. 
And the water kept rising and rising and rising and came over the meadow and it kept creeping up higher than it ever had before. And I said, well, yeah, something is going on. So we were watching the water get closer and closer and kind of realized that the water was getting to the porch itself. And we've had that one other time where it came up to the first step of the porch. But the water looked different. It looked a lot faster than it has before, and we've had some pretty fast water. The water was brown, of course, and it was going straight up in the air, turning itself into a mist. I have a picture of me standing on the lawn, and it looks like a wave, and the wave is taller than me. I don't know how high the waves were exactly, but they seemed like they were like six feet high. At least eight feet tall. So at that point, you could see the waves through the trees. and And then... We start watching the bridge, and we see trees on the other side of the river. They're starting to quiver and shake, and we think, oh my gosh, those trees. And they were 40 or 50 feet high. These weren't your little twigs coming down. These were full-size maples, 16, 18, 20-inch round trees. These were not just two, three. There were four, five at a time falling from either side. And then before you know it, it was like dominoes, toppling over, toppling over, Boom, 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 snap. (laughs) Into the water, it was like a monster was coming down the mountain. And entire trees, including roots and trunks and leaves, bobbing, just like toothpicks. It went from being on the first step at the porch to my husband and I and David looking and listening and saying, what is that noise? What could that noise possibly be? And at first I thought it was thunder. This noise, it got louder and louder and louder. You started to hear this rumble out of the river. It was the rocks, not rocks, boulders. The size of a Volkswagen just thrashing. Crashing against each other. It was an incredible sound. You could hear it, not only hear it, but feel it because it's such a low frequency. It was just this rising roar. And then the road started to just get slowly eaten away, eaten away, huge chunks. And within probably an hour and a half, Route 4 was gone. We decided that the tennis courts were going to be washed away and the ball fields finally came up high enough so that couldn't see the tops of the corn anymore. Well, this had never happened before. So we started thinking, well, what, what do we take upstairs? What do we even know what to deal with? I looked at mom and I said, you have five minutes. What else do you need? We had to grab what we could grab in five minutes. My mother's paintings. I pointed to two file servers and said, everything else of my business can go away, but the data on there is irrecoverable. And then the cats. My son decided he was going to take not his PlayStation or his Wii or his thousands of games. He went after the little golden book collection that we had (laughs) and threw them all in plastic bags and carted them upstairs. And in just the amount of time it took him to put the books in the bag, water was seeping into our front floor everywhere. And then, um, and then the kitchen started getting wet, and it was just coming up through the floor. And when we looked outside the glass doors, you could see the water was probably two feet higher outside than it was inside. And so then we started this loop where we started on one staircase and looked at our living room where our furniture started floating. Then we'd go upstairs and go around to the next staircase where we watched our dining room um, tables and chairs just start to float around and bob. 
and then we'd go all the way upstairs to the second floor and out the window and look out the second story window to see what was what was passing by and just all these amazing objects from other people's homes are swimming through our property i was watching tires go down the river at 30 miles an hour i could see all my wood from my wood pile floating by me and i'm trying to grab it like people's oil tanks and somehow they're managing to maneuver through the maze of our swing set and the sandbox and making their way downstream somewhere and by this time now our front porch is completely covered and um, we have a pickup truck that's parked next to our house always remember looking out the window and seeing that you couldn't see the pickup truck anymore and so we then walked back one of our loops back to the front door and we leaned over and, and started putting marks um, every time the water, where the water was, and we'd do a loop and mark it so we'd watch the water come up with a pencil on our door. And um, pretty surreal, just watching things float around and saying, well, all right, well, we've got two more stories. We can go up two more stories. I guess it'll be all right. Except then we got to thinking that things were hitting our house and all sorts of noise was happening, so we started being a little concerned about what if the house tipped over? What if it just got rocked off its foundation? What do you do then? The water was rushing so forcefully down the road. It was like it had a life of its own. It formed these patterns that maybe we couldn't predict. There were houses that I was sure were going to be destroyed or damaged that really didn't have any damage, and ones that you might not think would be affected were affected greatly. No matter how much you dug and tried to divert the water, there was just no changing where it was going at that point. It was just too forceful. I hear my my wife screaming for me to come up. I come upstairs, I look out our dining room window towards John and Beth's house. It's surreal. You look out, there's the house, and where the foundation should be is water. It's just this river water. And at this time, the Frock's basement had collapsed into the river, and the water was just in there circulating and digging out more and more of their basement, more and more of their foundation. And, and I mean, there was boxes of books and boxes of stuff just floating down the river. Their foundation had just fallen away. When the foundation was undermined, it was like a cannon was in there firing out boxes of books. They were just exploding out of there one by one. And that's when we realized we had to get out of the house. As Rihanna said, all the grammar's books are floating down the river. We were just starting to back out and heard Amy screaming. I looked over and saw the collapsed house. I was about to go out the door when the house went over. And I just stepped aside to grab my bag with a laptop and all these valuable papers. And I realized if I hadn't stepped over there, I would have just been catapulted right through the hallway down into the, into the stream. And what broke my fall was the closet that was in the hallway there because I'd stepped aside. And luckily the huge soapstone stove didn't come crashing through. <laughs> the uh, bookcase that was there fell over me, which actually saved me from the rubble of the ceiling and the, the staircase and everything was collapsing. And I basically said, this is it, I'm dead. This is the end of my story. And I accepted it. I was like, there's, you know, there was no panic, nothing of that nature. It was just totally calm. 
it's difficult. Um, I will always remember the look on, on Beth's face. And she says, my God, John's inside the house. Sean starts yelling for John. And then I could hear Sean out there asking if I was all right. And I didn't see my life flashing before my eyes. So I figured, well, must be still here. life here. So I was like able to pull myself out. And once I got out to the front door, Sean was there and he could pull me out the rest of the way. Sean starts yelling for John. He answers and he pulls him out. And it was such an emotional moment for me. And I just said, John's safe. The rest is all just stuff. It's material goods. It isn't alive. We can do without it. But John's safe. Their kids are safe. You know, Beth's safe. We're all safe. The rest is just stuff. Uh, I think I even mentioned that to you, John, and I don't know if that seems in, the, in retrospect a terrible thing to say to someone whose house has just fallen in the river, but um, that's what I was feeling at the time. <sighs> you know, to, to see the destruction of a place you've spent 15 years of your life where your daughters have grown up and knew no other place, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a wound that never really goes away, at least not yet. I mean, it's only six months, seven months. It's something that just festers in your brain, no matter how you try to, to move on. And trying to keep everybody's spirits up, you know, trying to keep moving forward. You know, it's, when the house fell over, it wasn't just dealing with that. It opened up a whole whole lot of other issues that you had no idea that first day afterwards and we were like trying to just pull a few things out of the wreckage it's it's an ongoing process that's that doesn't seem about to come to an end <laughs> And then the phone rings. It always rings, right? And you're in the middle of a crisis. It's my friend Peggy. Are you all right? Yes, we're fine, Peggy. We're fine. Well, what can I do? He said, Peggy, please pray. I want you to put in a direct line to God, because you have one of those, and tell him to turn off the water, because this is ridiculous, and our house is totally surrounded. And by the way, I can't talk to you anymore. Get off the phone. I know she has a direct line. It was about 15 minutes. The water stopped. It had come within one inch of coming in our living space. On one trip, we noticed that we could see one of the lines on our front door, which meant the water was going down. So we did a quick trip out to the back window, and we could see that you could see the top of the truck. And from then, it was... Um, pretty exciting because we were all thrilled about it going down and like the water's going down that's so cool and then it just stopped and it started to recede and it stopped raining and the water had really receded quite a bit and we saw a fish just like you would in the comics flipping across the road got across went into the ditch where there was quite a bit of water and off it went down the river Morning came up, and we, we got up, and we walked downstairs, and everything was just this up-to-your-ankles muck 
that was just all through the house. And you walked outside and there was, there was so much rubble, you, you just didn't even know where to look. Our stand of Christmas trees had caught every single thing that went down the, the valley and um, you couldn't see our flower gardens or backyard because it was full of eight and 10 inches of muck, but it was beautiful outside. And it was beautiful, it was cool. The sky was relatively clear. It's almost like you could see the storm clouds heading off to the east. And what a gorgeous blue sky day it was. The thing I remember about that morning was realizing that it wasn't our road. It wasn't what happened to us. When you look up in the sky and see 12 helicopters, you know that this is way the heck bigger than losing Liberty Hill Road. And there wasn't anybody going to be coming to repair our road washout, yeah, anytime soon. So we made our way to Wilmington and got through the first blockade because we told them we had a business in town. And they said, well, prepare yourself because it's not good. So I, I stood up the road we were at right near People's Bank there. And with my eyes, I looked back straight into town and where my husband had just two days ago finished the first coat of yellow paint on our newly renovated building, there was no yellow building at all. So got on the phone and called my mom. And I'll, to be continued. <laughs> so the next morning, I thought, well, I've got to do something. I've got to get up early. So I get up at 4 o'clock. I wanted to get to the pit because I knew people would be needing material. So I get through the village. I get down through, and I see a pile of gravel by the Nason Brook Bridge, by the cemetery, and so forth. And, of course, my headlights picked up a pile of gravel. Water was still running over the top of it, and so on. Then I realized the gravel was about 6 feet high. And on top of this gravel was a casket in the middle of Route 100 on top of a pile of gravel. Needless to say, my heart sunk. Uh, What could I do about it? Nothing. The road was closed. We got to the lower entrance to the cemetery, and Faye wanted to go. And I remember her squeezing the life out of my hand as we walked up the hill so that she could find out if her mother's grave was okay. And then we walked into town, and you talk about the big eyes, just the total amazement of the destruction and the people walking around in just sort of awe that something so powerful had happened to our valley and that indeed it had changed. And at that point, we were feeling so lucky because the water had lapped at the back of our house and not gone in. But we didn't realize that as the water went down, there was nothing left under it. And that was the shock of it, is that, yeah, we've seen the flood many, many times. But when what has been there since before the 27 flood is exposed in the morning, and huge boulders, 30 by 30 feet, that you know were under the bridge, and they're not within sight It's almost like a little kid after you fall down and somebody comes and picks you up, then you cry. It was just, you know, several days just feeling like complete chaos, not sure what to do at all. You know, when all your your reference points have been just sort of washed away. That Monday morning, Jim Huntington walked down He'd never been in a barn before in his life. 
And he got up, and at 7 o'clock in the morning, I was busy cooking breakfast, and I looked out the window, and there's this guy walking down the road. Went in the barn, picked up a shovel, and started to help. And now he's part of our extended family. <laughs> so I went down to the river, and the bridge was gone. And Pete, you got your skiff. You probably don't call it a skiff. What do you call it? Your boat. <laughs> you got your boat. And you lowered it down over this precipice, which was the new edge of the road. And I think that it was Bruce Flewelling who decided that he wasn't going to wait for the boat. He was going to traverse the branches of the tree that was across the river. He went a couple feet in the water, and then he started grabbing a hold of twigs. And he worked himself up to something a little more substantial, and he crossed the river on the tree. And then they set up this most amazing pulley system for this boat to go back and forth, and that was our way off the island. Everybody felt helpless if they couldn't help. I don't even remember the days, but I just remember that somehow we started cooking. We had propane, we had food, it was going bad, it made all the sense in the world. We set tables up, people brought grills in. It was really beautiful because everybody just wanted to help in any way they could, and um, they did. And sometimes it got a little hectic. I can remember at times, you know, standing in that kitchen and going, okay, 35 of you need to get out of here because there's only room for 20 of us in here. So, uh, but, but because we had fed so many people in such a short amount of time, we were quickly running out of food. But it made no difference because every morning you would wake up and there'd be a new fresh delivery of food sitting on the doorstep from people's freezers or for farmers or anything. You never got a note, oh, this was from me, or nobody stood up and it was like, you know, hey, I need special acknowledgement because, you know, I brought you food or... I do, however, remember one very special night when we got to go into Nancy's house and clean out her freezer. She, she has very good taste in food. And everybody had great feasts that night. It was, it was beautiful. What was so extraordinary about what happened was it was like being at a party and you're playing musical chairs and everybody says, okay, move. And everyone's moving, and all of a sudden you're sitting next to somebody completely different that you're not used to sitting next to. And so one of the really kind of fun parts of it, if you can say this was fun, was that those that could get together got together. So it was a total equalizer because the game was, we're going to do this the best that we can because we don't have the same kind of resources that we usually have. And the resources we have are the ones that are in the room. It was almost like a Wild West feeling in town. ATVs were coming over the mountain. There's all kinds of vehicles on the roads. But, you know, there was no lawlessness about it. There was no crime. There was no thoughts of looting or nothing going on like that at all. People were just pitching in and... I can't remember anybody ever complaining. Everybody just helped each other. You wouldn't want to say it was fun because it was serious and it was hard, but, but there was something... What's the right word? Joyous about it. There was one fellow that my husband and I kept picking up who was hitchhiking, who was camping in the National Forest campground in Irene Struck and living in a tent. So he lived through all the rain in the tent, and he had no car, and he would walk to town every day and help with the cleanup. His name is Steve. I just ran into him at the gas station the other day, so I know he's still in town somewhere. He said he actually decided to move here based on his experience. But this was someone who had no ties other than he was camping, who stayed in town and shoveled garbage out of people's homes. He was a whole unit of labor, and all he wanted to do was help. 
runs down in the town office and this woman and her boyfriend came in it's like okay we get it we're stuck here so what can we do to help and so everyone looked and they said well tell you what here's some orange ribbon and drive back up the road and anywhere where it looks scary get some sticks and put them in the holes and tie a ribbon to them you know they didn't need to know the names of the roads they didn't know whose house and they're like okay we can do that finally the trailer park patterson's park in duxbury called me and said, is anybody coming? And I was like, I don't, I don't know, I'll be there in the morning. Everybody in Waterbury was right across the river, but here, just a little bit away, was another bad area that hadn't been touched yet. And so, you know, and my, my last memory of Saturday was a really gross mobile home that somebody had abandoned. And we had to clean it out because it was food that was rotting, it was stuff that was wet. And that was hard because of the physical part of it. And then to see across the way, people were cleaning their photographs because that's what we save, right? That's what we want to save our memories. That's what a lot of people were keying in on was, I got to get my photographs clean. A lot of volunteers were doing that. And here I am in this mobile home where they left them behind. They just said goodbye. They just left their memories right there, you know, and wherever they went, they just left them. And it was just this incredible juxtaposition of choices. That same day, I had been to the skip mart. The young lady who was working behind the counter said to me, can I tell you something? I think there's something good about this. And I said, what do you think is good? And she said, well, I always used to think that I lived in a good town full of good people, and now I know I do. So that was another thing I, I remember saying, sorry, I'm getting emotional about it, because it just was an emotional experience for everybody, I think. Whether you had damage to your property or not, you at least knew people who did. And because we're a small town, and we all pretty much know each other, it affects you very personally, you know? So I'm going to tell my crying story, okay? So I have to turn this way. <laughs> I have horses, and we always buy our hay from Mike's uncle, who's Richard. And Richard suffered devastating losses to his property. And um, like many people, I hadn't gotten all of the hay in for the winter for the horses. And maybe three weeks after the storm, I was speaking to Richard on the phone, and he said, well, Nancy, you know, I still have two wagons of hay for you. So here's a man who had lost so much, and because he said a deal is a deal, and I promised you hay, he was going to give me hay that he really didn't have any extra for himself, but he wanted to give it to me because he had promised it. And... That was just amazing. A mother-in-law of mine had a dream about all the relatives, her mother-in-law, her grandparents, sitting on the steps of the hardware. They were invisible to us, but she could see them all. And they were pointing and laughing and saying, we knew we could get them to get their act together if we just threw a really big event. What will it take to get these people to look at what's important and the connections with people and the old feuds that didn't matter anymore? And the feeling of, okay, we're really lucky. Look where we are and look what's worth saving. I came away with that from this. It, it changed us all and it, it brought us more into realizing what we can do by ourselves, 
how thrifty we can be, how Yankee we can be, and how strong we can be. Um, it, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, but we haven't really lost a lot. I think we've gained. Well, Mary Sue and I have now moved into our home a couple of weeks ago. It is very bitter and very sweet. The water has a way of flushing things out like old farmhouses, and then it allows opportunities to do things like put insulation in a home that deserved it and never had it. So now we don't dry our hair by the windows when the wind blows. We're warm now, and that's wonderful. So these things happen, you make lemonade. But getting to the point where you can do that took every shovel full, every rake full, every phone call, every dollar, every wheelbarrow full of lath and plaster, every dumpster, and just everything that people did. And I just like to take my hat off to the youth in this community who did for all of us what they did and didn't have to be asked and didn't have to be told. My son was in people's basements mucking out for several days, covered with mud, just covered with mud for days. But at one point, he came back and he was kind of mad. And I said, what's the matter? And, and he said, you know, I should know more than I do. I should know how to run a chainsaw. I should know how to hammer nails better than I know. I should know how to rip out a wall. I should know this stuff. I grew up on a farm. It was so valuable for him. Such a valuable experience. There's a big hill that you can climb and get this great view of the reservoir. I remember sitting up there and looking out at the water, and nobody was there except for the boys and the ranger and the crystal clear water. And it was the surreal feeling of knowing that there was a lot of work ahead, and I had no idea what the work was going to be or how my life was going to change, but I just knew in that moment that everything was going to be different when I got back down from the hill. The, the last week or so as I drive through the town and now that <laughs> what little snow we had is gone, you see the landscape. And Bob, that first week, he kept saying it altered the landscape. And it has. And there's places in the past week that I see differently. But it's, it's still a, a huge jumble. When you start letting it out, all sorts of things start crowding to the surface. For Chloe, I mean, a month after she started school, she came back and she's like, I'm going to fail science. And I was like, why? She said, well, our science teacher is insisting that we have to do a field trip along the river. And I told him I don't want to do it. And he's like, there's no, there's no good reason why you can't do what all the other kids are doing. She said, I don't want to see all my stuff down the river. I was not too unhappy being kind of isolated in a way. It was 20 days. And... I have a problem after the storm now because I was isolated for that 20 days. And prior to that experience, I was at the point where I'm a retired school teacher and I think the world is going too fast and I wanted to say, stop the world, I want to get off with all the technology and everything. And through this, I learned something about myself that I could really slow down and I didn't need everything. I, I didn't have mail. I didn't have garbage pickup, all the things that we are so addicted to that we really need in our lives. I didn't have the phone for a while. 
I said, I can live like this. This is okay. And now I'm, I, I'm having a little bit of a hard time getting back to the rigid life, the organized life that I had before. I think sometimes we go about our daily lives and we take for granted what's going on. Sometimes as a stay-at-home mother, I went to college and I did all these things and then I stayed home and I washed the same dishes over and over again and I washed the same clothes over and over again. And sometimes I forget that the job that I'm doing is important as it is. And when something like this happens, it sort of wakes you up. It sort of just makes you realize how important life really is and how important all the little things that you do every day are. It was about a week after, I don't know, it was two or three weeks after the flood, and I hadn't even gotten off our property much. And I went over 125. It was Mary Sue and I, and whoever was in front of us was driving really, really slow, and I was getting my version of Vermont road rage, you know. Come on, come on, come on, I got stuff to do, you know. And then I hit the brakes and slowed way down and said, we're going towards a very, very special place. We're going towards a community that literally emptied itself to come and help the people in Rochester. And that person in front of us could be one of those people that was at my home. It's a good reminder of how to treat strangers because those people didn't know me at all. And they went to my house in a nameless sort of way and then went back over the mountain to their home. And that happened with college kids, college coaches, fire departments, all the way up Route 7. And every one of those people were at my house, I can tell you, and I know they were at many of yours. We showed up at the town meeting one day. I don't know what day that is now, day three probably, I think. And we need some people to go down and help a house that's uh, on the south of town. It's in terrible shape. So I went down there to look for some volunteers, and George Godding said, I want to be one of those people. So I got in the car with George, and George starts to talk about when he first came here, which I think was about, what, 40 years prior to that? And he said, you know, when I first came here, the community was really divided. And what I'm really loving about this is how much people are getting to know each other. And here he was, acting like a 20-year-old going down to this building to help muck out. So we're down there, and he's stuffing this disgusting insulation into these plastic bags. And it's a really hot day, and at one point I look at him and I say, you know, have you had any water? And he sits down. He looks just really hot. And I said to George, you know what, I think I should take you back into town now. So we get back in the car, and we start going home. And then he starts talking about his life. And <laughs> it was such a privilege to hear about growing up on a farm and losing his mother, him having to be sent away to live somewhere else. And all of this is being charged up by the situation. There was this sense of uh, resiliency that he was expressing in that moment about what he had experienced and how this thing that was going on in the community was connecting him to that very part of him that was the thing that had helped him survive all these years and helped him build the community within himself. And here he was, getting to have in these twilight years an experience that was deeply connecting him to the thing that makes him feel good in the world. And he was as high as a kite. It was just like the opportunity to be useful, to contribute. And so that's the thing that we saw over and over again. We'd pass kids smiling. I'd be like, oh. I'm not used to seeing that kid smiling. They were so on purpose. They had a sense of the thing that they were doing was real work. 
And I kept on thinking about that. How do you get to a place where this is what you're always doing? You're always doing the real work. You're not just sort of biding your time, but you're figuring out ways that you can be making it better. This is Mame. It's incredible to hear these other stories. Isn't it? You know, these people that I've worked side by side with all this time, I have no idea. I remember going home and we had just bought a camper and I just went and laid down in the camper. My whole body was just buzzing and it felt like I was glowing. It felt like I was three times my size with this just glow and I realized that that's what was happening for everyone. Every time I would have this realization about what this was for me, each time my next thought was and multiply that up and down the state and multiply that up and down the coast, that the energy of all of the people affected, whether you were flooded or whether you were responding to the flood, was the same. And I wondered if they could see us from out in space. Weathering the Storm was produced by Ailey Baker of the Vermont Folklife Center. Music by Jake Wildwood of Rochester, Vermont. Mastered by David Cooper. Funding for the Irene Storytelling Project was provided by Green Mountain Coffee, the Vermont Community Foundation, the Vermont Humanities Council, Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation, Robert Fleming and Jane Howe Patrick Foundation, Lyman Orton and Janice Izzy, and anonymous donors. To learn more about the Irene Storytelling Project, And to listen to more excerpts from Story Circles, visit us online at www.vermontfolklifecenter.org slash Irene. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next week to hear from the residents of Menden 10 years later. To learn more about the Irene Storytelling Project, visit the show notes for this episode at www.vtfolklife.org untapped. Thanks for listening.